Amen. Amen. Thank you, Michael and team. Uh, I've loved that song uh, since the first time I heard it, um, and it was recorded by Todd Agnew on his Christmas album titled, Do You See What I See? And uh, I usually leak from the face when I hear that song. Uh, And there's three phrases in particular that stand out at the end of each chorus. It says, who could know we'd find? And the first time it says, the eternal one born into time. And this idea that that God, who is eternal, all the way into the past, all the way into the future, this eternal God allowed himself to be born into time. Paul says it this way in Galatians 4. He said, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, his very self. And it's hard to wrap our minds around the idea of the eternal God being born into time and living a linear temporal existence and then going back into being timeless. And I think the second phrase there, who could know we'd find mortal and mystery somehow intertwined. If we think we understand the magnitude of Emmanuel, God with us, then we have reduced it. If we can wrap our heads around that, then what we are wrapping our minds around is something less than this amazing, miraculous mystery of God being with us here on earth. And the final chorus says, who could know we'd find the creator born redeemer of mankind and the hand of God is reaching out for mine this baby child is God with us he is reaching out to us and pastor Keith said something a couple of weeks ago when he preached and I had never really considered it the way he stated it this idea that God did not need us He didn't need us. He didn't create us because he needed us. He didn't create us because he needed to be loved. He already had perfect fellowship, perfect divine love within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing in perfect divine love. So the only logical conclusion is that God created us in order to love us, to share that perfect divine love with us. And we see that nowhere more clearly then in this season of Advent, as we consider that God is with us, it should fill us with awe and wonder. So last week we started a new series focusing on this idea, focusing on the title Emmanuel that we see a couple of times in the Old Testament and once in the New Testament that literally means that God is with us. Jesus is God. Jesus is fully God, fully man. We'll talk about that in in a few moments, but... The personhood of Christ, the, the, the humanity of Christ is unique in all the religions of the world that God would come to us and live with us and among us in flesh. He was physically here, physically present. He faced every temptation that we face. He was a man of sorrow. He suffered. He, he bore the weight of evil upon himself and conquered that forever through the power of the resurrection. And all this is in view as we consider God with us. But not just with me, not just with you, but with us, with all of us, with the body of Christ around the world. God 
is with us. And so last week we considered the idea of light coming into the darkness, that, that God didn't just shine his light toward the darkness, but in the person of Christ, he entered the darkness on our behalf and brought the light of the world into the darkness of the world to illuminate the world. God is light. He tells us that we as his, his followers are to be the light of the world. We are the light of the world, and he sends us into the world. And so today, we're going to maybe pick up where we left off. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 9 again. We'll look at verse 6. It's on page 1072 of the hardcover blue Bibles that are out there. If you need to grab one of those, they're in the seats in front of you. But as we go into the world as bearers of light, as reflectors of God's light, the question today is, what do you need? What do you need for that journey into the world, into the dark and broken world? What do you need? And as you consider that, or as you contemplate that, consider these words from the prophet Isaiah in verse 6. He says, For a child is born to us. A child is born to us. A son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So as you think about what it is you need, there are four titles that are given to this gift, this son, this child that is born to us, that that he is a wonderful counselor, that he is a mighty God, that he is an everlasting Father, he is a Prince of Peace. Which of those do you need most this Christmas season as you take his light into the world. Before we pick each of those apart, I want to look at the first couple of lines of this passage um, as we consider the needs that we may have. There may be spiritual needs, there may be physical needs, there may be financial needs or relational needs, or maybe emotional needs. And this God that was given to us in the person of Christ is here to meet those needs. In fact, Hebrews 1, 3, you don't necessarily need to turn there, but it tells us something important about this Son that was born to us. It tells us that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. This is really important to understand when we consider the remainder of this message and the different things that Christ is to us or comes to us to be is that he is the exact representation of God, of the triune God, that Jesus is like this. He is a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace because God is like this. And Jesus came as the exact representation of So this is what our Heavenly Father is like. This is what the Holy Spirit is like. This is what the triune God is like. And it's also important to keep in mind that Isaiah is writing this, these prophecies, a full 700 years before Christ comes. So there was a 700-year span of time. And other writers in the Old Testament prophesied of this coming Messiah, of this King. All the way back in Genesis 3, we have the first foreshadowing that God will send a solution to the sin problem. He will send a solution to redeem us, to bring us back. All the way in Genesis 3, right up into the last of the, of the minor prophets, the last pages of the Old Testament, there is a looking ahead to this Messiah who will come. Now, 
I get a lot of emails. Anybody else get a lot of emails? Like a ridiculous number of emails? I probably, I estimate I get 50 to 60 emails a day, and I gust up to 70 or 80, you know, if there's a lot going on. And about half of those are kind of, you know, buy this, look at this, read this, do that. About half of them actually mean something. I need to read them carefully and understand. About half of those I need to respond in some way. But I got an email a couple of weeks ago. It's risen up on my all-time emails list. It's one of my favorite. Um, It was from my son. He's 14 years old. And he sent me this email that said, Hey, Dad, a few days ago I read this in my devotional, and I thought maybe you could use it in a sermon. You see, he reads a devotional on his uh, Bible app every every morning. And he, it says, in 1958, renowned mathematics and astronomy professor Peter Stoner studied and calculated the chances of the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies. He concluded that the probability of even eight of the 108 prophecies about Christ coming to pass is, conservatively speaking, one in 100 quadrillion. That's a big number. And even if he's half off, even if you miss by 50%, that would be one in 500 trillion, okay? That's how big quadrillion would be. And that's just eight out of the 108. He stopped there because numbers don't get big enough. So the probability is really, 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 really low that this would happen sort of on accident. In fact, trying to wrap my mind around what 100 quadrillion is, I got a thousand dots on the screen. And so when you look at the screen, that's a thousand dots. I took a little image of a hundred dots and I repeated it ten times. So there's a thousand. You don't have to count them. You can just trust me on this. It's church. It's Sunday. I'm not going to lie to you in church on a Sunday. Then I did a little bit of math, as much math as I could do, and I took the dimensions of the screen and the dimensions of that little thing of a thousand dots. And it's about 80 square feet on the screen right there. It's about 80 square feet to contain those 1,000 dots. And that was about as far as I could go. But there was an engineer in the building on Thursday. And so I asked Ron uh, Litzo if he would figure out the square footage of this room that we're in. And it turns out the square footage of this room that we're in is about 7,500. He did all kinds of calculations. He got scale drawings out. He divided it into triangles and squares and rectangles. And I just love engineers. Don't you love engineers? So this is really cool. So this came out to about 7,500 square feet in here. And I round that up to 8,000 square feet. So that means that to get a million dots, we would need at least 10 almost 11 rooms this size covered in dots that big. Does that kind of blow your mind? And that's just a million, okay? So if every dot on that screen was a thousand dots, that would be a million. If every one of those dots was a million dots, that would be a billion. And if every one of those dots was a trillion dots, that would be one quadrillion dots. But they said a hundred quadrillion. So if your mind is not sufficiently blown in the miraculous nature of God coming to us in the person of Jesus Christ, I hope it is now. Because this child 
that was born. And did you notice that there are two, it kind of restates itself. Anytime scripture restates itself, if you look at the first half there of of verse 6, it says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. I think it's significant. I think the child, that word child in the Hebrew language would point us to the humanity of Christ. That to us a child, a human flesh and blood child is born through human birth. In fact, Paul, I mentioned it earlier in Galatians 4. He says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, to be born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. That Jesus was born in a human fleshly birth, divine conception, but human birth. He was fully human, and we can identify with him, and he can identify with us. He knows what it means to walk on this earth and to face trial and to face temptation and to face difficulty. But it also says, to us a son is given, and that points directly to the Son of God, to the prophecies that were fulfilled as this Son of God. And Jesus refers to himself many times as the Son of God during the Gospels, during his time on earth. This is fully God, fully divine as well. And so you've heard that phrase put to Jesus before, fully human, fully divine. I love what C.S. Lewis says about Jesus in Mere Christianity. He says, not just fully, not just 100%, but truly, truly God and truly human. That he was in essence God and in essence human. And this is a great mystery that we cannot fully comprehend. The next line there says the government will be on his shoulders, and I'm not going to get into that today because that's the message next week. So come back next week, and we'll talk all about what it means that the government will be on his shoulders. But today I want to spend the remainder of our time talking about what do you need, and specifically looking at these four names that are given to Christ and the different needs that we can have met in our lives as we look to Christ. First, as a wonderful counselor. Now, some translations put a comma between wonderful and counselor, and some hymns put a comma between wonderful and counselor. And, and he is wonderful, plain and simple, and he is a counselor. Uh, most translations now favor no comma between wonderful and counselor. They just say he's a wonderful counselor. And the original language doesn't actually have punctuation. So if you prefer to have a comma in between there, go for it. It's okay. But he is a wonderful counselor, and I I like considering both words separately and then how they combine. He's wonderful, meaning that everything about him is wonderful. That word wonderful literally means to be full of wonder, to be full of awe, to be amazed, to be astounded. To recognize the incomprehensibility of how truly wonderful Jesus is. He is astonishing in wisdom and in insight because he is a wonderful counselor. And that word counselor literally means one who gives advice or guidance. And so, you know, you can go sit down on one of the goofy chairs with a counselor and get some wisdom, get some advice, get some uh, guidance, or you can have friends in your lives that are counselors to you. Or, you know, the proverb says there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. We don't need just one. We need several. Maybe you have someone in your life that you go to when you have a financial question because they seem to really have things worked out. Or there's someone in your life that is a counselor for you on relationship issues, and they give you wise advice and wise guidance. Well, Jesus 
is this wonderful counselor. He is distinguished and without peer. And so if you came through these doors in need of guidance today, I cannot assert strongly enough that Jesus, through his word, through his spirit, is the wonderful counselor. And he has the best advice that you can possibly receive. If you have decisions to make, he is your first and best source of advice. And he surrounds us with people through the fellowship of believers that then supplement that. But if you're getting advice that goes against his word, that's not good advice. And you have to know what his word says to know if the advice that you're getting is good or not. And so we need to spend time in his word every single day to be familiar with it, to recognize it. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, very famous passage in the Old Testament says that that we are to trust in the Lord in all our ways to acknowledge him and he will make our path straight. So if we need guidance, we, we trust in the Lord, we acknowledge him in all our ways, we see what his word has to say about it, we bounce that off a few people. Sometimes it's not win-lose, sometimes it's win-win and we have to make a decision between good, better, and best and that's where people can help us to do that. But we acknowledge him, to me, which means that we know him deeply. Acknowledge is kind of a weak translation of that. It's the Hebrew word yada. It's the most intimate form of knowledge. It's, it's the word used with how a man knows his wife and how a wife knows her children and how we're meant to know God with this deep, deep, intimate, intimate knowledge. And so if, if you have a decision to make, if you need guidance, you need wisdom, he is a wonderful counselor, but he's also a mighty God. This word mighty God pops up all over the Old Testament. Almighty God, oftentimes, is how it's referred to. And it means the mightiest. It means the strongest. It means supreme. Sometimes the word is attached to a warrior as one who is valiant and brave and courageous. But ultimately, it means that he is mighty to save. He is mighty to rescue. He is mighty to deliver. That he is mighty to overcome on our behalf or to empower us to overcome. And so as you pray to your mighty God, as you think about your mighty God and his supremacy and his ability, sometimes it changes the circumstances. And we see examples of that in the New Testament. When Jesus was on earth, he went from place to place and he interacted with people and they needed something, something supernatural. They needed sight restored. They needed to be raised from the dead. They needed healing of some sort. And he interceded in their circumstances and changed their circumstances. But the vast majority of the time, our circumstances don't change. But we still look to our mighty God. We still pray to our mighty God. We still trust our mighty God. And in so doing, we change. And we receive new mercies every day that are form-fitted to the needs of the day because he is a mighty God and he gives us supernatural power to endure, supernatural power to respond as he would respond, supernatural power to be changed into the image of Christ. Not by changing our circumstances, but changing us within our circumstances. So we can trust him even more. So we can trust him even more deeply and accept things as they are even more. 
But he's also an everlasting father. And this one used to confuse me a little bit because I thought I was like, well, isn't Jesus the son? The father is like somebody else in the Trinity and the Holy Spirit. Why are we talking about the son being an everlasting father? Wouldn't he be an everlasting son? And, and here you have to understand we're not talking about this Trinitarian way. You, you understand the root words. You, you understand that everlasting really is probably better translated as eternal. And the word father fits there, but it's the Hebrew word Abba, which is the word Jesus used in the Garden of Gethsemane to refer to his heavenly father. And he prays to him and he addresses him as Abba. It's a Hebrew word meaning source and sustainer, which in that culture, the father in the household was the source, literally, physically, but also the sustainer by providing for and giving security and, and provision to his family. And so Jesus refers to God as this Abba, this Father, this source and sustainer. But Isaiah is saying, this son that is born to you represents the perfect representation of our eternal source and sustainer. That he is the provider of eternity to us. And so in Jesus, we will see the source of eternal life come to earth, that he came and he said that if anyone believes in me, he will not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus, the son, came to be the source of eternal life for all people for all time. But not only that, he is the source of everything eternal in your life. He is the source of everything in your life that will be eternal, that will last forever. Because all of us physically, we will pass away. The death rate still hovers right around 100%. Doesn't vary very much. We're all going to die. Sorry to drop that news in your lap. And I don't treat it flippantly. But Jesus, the eternal source, the source of our eternity, invites us to live lives that will outlast our physical bodies. It invites us to bring the eternal into our lives through him, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to do and say and be eternal in the things that we do for him, in the ways that we serve each other in his name. And so he will not only be the source of eternal life, but he will be the source of everything that is eternal in your life. And so that brings up two important questions right now. First, who has God used to have an eternal impact on your life? Who has God used to be a link in the chain that brought you to an eternal relationship with him? I started writing down names and I ran out of paper. I thought of John Spear, the pastor who preached the sermon when I gave my heart to Christ. I thought of Mike Prop, who invited me to a men's Bible study and just opened the scriptures. And it was like detonating a desire and a hunger and a thirst for God's word in my life when I saw the way this guy knew his Bible and understood and could explain things and answer questions. And I wanted that. It stirred up a hunger in my life. I thought of Julie Fox, my Christian counselor for the last 10 years, and how many ways she has had an eternal impact in my life and in many of your lives, because I don't think I would be in ministry today without Julie Fox. I wouldn't have made it. So I wouldn't have been here. So if anything I have done has had an eternal impact on your life, Julie gets part of the credit, and so does John, and so does Mike. And so does Ken Love, my ministry coach. When I was a new pastor, first time as a senior pastor, he was my ministry coach, and and he had this way of listening to me whine and cry and snivel 
and then speaking a prophetic word into my life that I was ready to go take the next hill. And then Steve Childs and Greg Wines and my friend Sean, who just, there's so many people that have had an eternal impact on my life. Who's had an eternal impact on your life? Send them a note. Pick up your phone and call them. Send them a text. Let them know that God has had an eternal impact on your life through their life. That's the first question. Who's had an eternal impact on your life? Second question, you might know where this is going, is who will he or has he eternally impacted through your life? Is there, is there a list of people that come to mind? And if not, ask him, God, who do you want to touch for eternity through my life? Who do you want to have an impact on? And let's get busy with that. Let's figure out what that looks like. Let's make an invitation. Let's go to coffee with someone, hear their story, share your story. Who's going who's gonna to be in heaven because of you, because of your life? Maybe another way of thinking of these two questions is, who is a link in the chain of your discipleship to Christ? And who can you be a link in the chain of in their discipleship? To Christ in following him, learning from him, taking his ways and making them your ways, taking his thoughts and making them your thoughts. This is discipleship. We're going to be talking a lot about discipleship in the year to come. Because everything is going to pass away except the things we do in his name, which will bear the mark of eternity. And so be thinking about that this Christmas, as you think about Christ coming to be an everlasting father or a father or a source of eternity in us and through us. The final one, he's a, he's a prince of peace. Sorry, the final one is the prince of peace. He's an everlasting father, a mighty God, and a wonderful counselor. But this one prince of peace, I think was particularly significant when Isaiah included it here in Isaiah 9-6. You see, God's people, the Jews, hadn't known a lot of peace. If you read the Old Testament, you read about wars, you read about being occupied by foreign nations, being deported to foreign nations, being scattered around the world, being attacked. The only real season of extended peace was at the tail end of David and the beginning of Solomon's reign, and it wasn't that long in the grand scheme of things. So they hadn't known a lot of peace. And I would venture to say that today... 2,000 years after this prophecy was fulfilled, we don't know a lot of peace either. We are blessed in America to have not had a, a major significant armed conflict on American soil for several hundred years. But we're hyper aware of what's going on around the world. Thanks in part, and I use thanks loosely, thanks in part to social media and global news networks and things like that. We know about suffering that if you think about it, a couple thousand years ago, you only knew what was happening right around you. you didn't know what, they didn't know what was going on in China. They didn't know what Genghis Khan was doing in the Holy Lands. They weren't aware of that. There's pain and suffering that we're hyper aware of today. There's a lack of peace because of all the conflict that we're aware of. Relational conflict in our own lives and conflict in the world around us and tension and injustice and broken relationships and division. You see, we don't know a lot of peace but we know the Prince of Peace. We know the Prince of Peace, and He came to be the Prince of Peace. And the peace that He offers us is not just the absence of that conflict or that tension or that war or that division. The peace that He came to bring us, the word that, that is used in the original language is the word shalom. 
It's this Hebrew greeting. They would greet each other with shalom and they would depart with shalom. And they were basically saying, peace to you, peace to this house. But it's so much more than the absence of conflict. It's the presence of contentment and completeness and wholeness. It's the, it's the presence of welfare, genuine welfare and harmony. All of these are wrapped up in this one Hebrew word, shalom. And he came to be the prince of peace, the prince of shalom in our lives. The word prince means a captain, a chieftain, a commander, a ruler, not just the son of the king, which he was, but also he is the commander of peace in our lives. And he said to the disciples when he greeted them after the resurrection, what's the first thing he says to them? He says, peace to you. Peace be with you. Shalom be with you. Wholeness, completeness, contentment, harmony be yours. And I believe we personally experience a lack of peace when we don't know Jesus and when he doesn't know us. When we don't know Jesus, we don't know the captain, the commander of peace. You've seen the signs, I'm sure, no God, no peace. And K-N-O-W, God, K-N-O-W, peace. When you know God, you know peace. But then they also say, N-O, God, no God. When the absence of God, there is an absence of peace. When we know him, truly know him, we will know peace. And he will bring us that peace, that contentment, that harmony. But the other time that we experience a lack of peace is when he doesn't know us. When he doesn't know us, and you say, well, he's all-knowing, he's omniscient, he knows everything. But he says something interesting in Matthew 7. He says, many will say to me in that day, at the final judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not do miracles? Did we not? Did we not? Did we not? And I'll respond to them, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. I preached a sermon on that passage one time called The Greatest or The Worst Surprise Ever. The Worst Surprise Ever. To think, here I've been doing all this stuff for God all my life, but if he doesn't know you, if he doesn't have access to you, if you're not fully surrendered to him and laid bare before him, not trying to keep anything from him, then he doesn't know you. We are called to complete, total, wholehearted surrender, to be open completely before him. I wrote in my notes, we can't hide anything from Christ, but we can die trying. We can't hide anything from Christ, but we can die trying to hide things from Christ, trying to cover up, trying to pretend it's not an issue, trying to pretend it doesn't need to be addressed. He came that we would know and be known by him, that he would be a wonderful counselor, that he would be a mighty God, that he would be an everlasting father and a prince of peace. In fact, our bottom line today is that Jesus came to be everything we need. He came to be everything we need. So the question is, has he come to be everything you need? He came to be everything we need, to meet all of our needs, here and now and for eternity. He came to meet our physical needs, our financial needs, our relational needs, our emotional needs. He came to be everything we need. 
If you've got decisions to be made, if you need guidance, he is a wonderful counselor. If you need rescue, he is a mighty God. He is strong to save. If you need eternal life and need your life to matter for eternity, he is your everlasting father. And if you need peace and harmony in your life, if your life is marked by an absence of those things, he is here to be your prince your chief, your commander of peace, of shalom, of contentment, of harmony. He is here to be everything you need. And the good news of Christmas is that God is with us to meet every need we can bring to him and to empower us to then go into the world and meet the needs of the world around us, to take the light that we have into the world around us. So as we close today, I want to invite you if you have a need, to lay that need at the feet of Christ and to trust him for his provision. As we sing our, our response song, I'm going to step over to this side. Pastor Keith is going to come over to this side. Pastor Zach will be back by the soundboard. If you'd like to be anointed and have a short prayer voiced for a need that you brought with you this morning, I would encourage you to come to one of the three of us. In James chapter 5, he writes, Is any of you in trouble? Does any of you have needs? You should pray. Is anyone happy? You can come and be anointed to rejoice. Is any one of you sick? You should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. That's what we'll be doing in these next few moments. And so I would invite you to rise, come to one of us, whichever one is closer, whichever one is more comfortable for you, and we will anoint you and voice a prayer for you. Don't leave this place unchanged. If you want to come on behalf of someone else to intercede for someone else who you know is in deep need, come and receive prayer. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so very, very thankful. So very thankful that you sent us not only a Savior, but a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, a source and sustainer of eternity in our everlasting Father, and a Prince of Peace. God, whatever needs we bring to you today, may we find that peace, may we find that power May we find wisdom and guidance. May we find your presence to guide us, to give us wisdom, to show us the way. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.